0: Our featured BBB Give.org accredited charity seal holders for this episode are National 4-H Council, Nuru International, Ocean Conservancy. To find out more about these and other BBB Wise Giving Alliance accredited charity seal holders, go to (music) Give.org.
1: You're listening to the Heart of Giving podcast with Art Taylor, powered by BBBgive.org. Here we explore the motivations that form the basis of giving and service. We inspire generosity and celebrate the transformative effects that giving and service have on the human spirit and on community. The conversations featured on the podcast also uncover giving strategies that educate, And provide tools to help listeners make impactful gifts of both their time and money. We hope you enjoy this episode.
0: Welcome to the Heart of Giving podcast, powered by BBBGive.org. Give.org is the nation's standards based charity evaluator, and it's your one stop source for information on giving and reports in the most asked about charities. I'm Art Taylor. You've heard me talk a lot on this show about the power of the arts to inspire us to give back and to show society a different path, a path that is inspired by passion and grows out of our love for that particular art. Well, today we're going to focus on dance and three previous people that I've talked to and rediscover the keys to which. They were able to use dance to make a difference in society. The first person you're going to hear from today is Rachel Lou. Rachel is a former student of mine who started dancing early in her life. And then when her company went bankrupt, decided to band together with other families to create what is now the largest dance company in Nebraska. Rachel learned a lot from that experience. And now she wants to give back. Rachel, your early life is one that I think more people really need to understand and learn about. It doesn't matter how old you are to start something that can be transformative for people's lives. And in your case, you were part of the formation of a dance studio and then later a dance company in Nebraska. How did that come about? Where did this interest you have in dance come from? And tell me a little bit about your life in dance and how it's led you to where you are today.
2: Um, Well, I grew up in the competition dance world. And for those who don't know much about it, it's essentially like the TV show Dance Moms. I don't know if you've watched that. Or to give some context, if you know Jojo Siwa, who's pretty famous now, Um, she actually competed with us every weekend at various different competitions. And if you see where her career has taken her, it's a different sphere of the entertainment industry. So there's either the professional company route, or there's a more commercialized route. And I, while I grew up in the competition dance world, I first came across this nonprofit ballet company route around the age of nine. When I moved into the nonprofit world of ballet, I realized there was so much more to this art form. From the technique to the culture of training, it was so different compared to the nature of competition, and only a professional company provided this level of training. At the time, there was only one company in Nebraska called the Omaha Theater Ballet. I switched from competition to the ballet world, but soon after, they closed down due to financial issues and a lack of funding. And so my mom was very involved at the time, and she was close to a lot of the professional dancers. And one in particular came up to us and said, I want, to start, um, I want to start my own company, but I don't know where to begin. So we got a bunch of families together, all put our heads together and decided to start a company. We put together a board, a guild, and a junior guild. So I was in the advanced program at the Omaha Theatre Ballet, which consisted of dancers that were mainly 15 to 18, and I was 12 to 13 at the time. So this group of advanced students became part of the junior guild and also Ballet Nebraska too which was kind of like a trainee program. And we were a junior company that always performed and trained with a professional company. So I think that the importance of giving was inadvertently drilled into us because our passion depended on it. We would come out during intermission after we performed on stage and we would sell baked goods, raffle items, flowers that the audience could throw on stage at curtain calls and signed point shoes. As Ballet Nebraska 2, the junior company and the junior guild, we were so involved because we knew our potential opportunities and training depended on the survival of the company. So from the grassroots level of just involving students with a passion and incorporating them as a junior company with hands-on responsibilities for fundraising, I learned firsthand the importance of philanthropy.
0: Yeah, you did. And this ballet company continues to shine and grow today. Is that correct?
2: Mm -hmm. Yeah. We now have over... Thirty paid dancers. We started with 10, so it's been wonderful.
0: Wow, that's amazing. So somehow you got the bite, I guess, to pursue a nonprofit career. (laughs) I know that you have a history um, major background, and and now you're at Columbia School of Professional Studies, uh, getting your master's in nonprofit management. What was it that led you to say, I need to strengthen my skill set here because I see myself in this field.
2: Throughout college, I was always volunteering and I was always trying to find ways um, to get, be involved with nonprofit organizations. And it wasn't until I came across this program at Columbia that, that I realized, oh, I could make a career out of this. And so I was also inspired by my childhood because without this company, in the Midwest, I definitely wouldn't have gotten the opportunities that I did given the limited appreciation for ballet at the time. I know the Midwest still struggles with this. So when we first started the ballet um, company, we never knew it would grow to this level. We were just coming together to essentially save ballet in Nebraska. And it was because of this introduction into the world of ballet that I was able to discover bigger companies like the Joffrey Ballet in Chicago, or San Francisco Ballet, and the New York City Ballet, Omaha Theater Ballet really opened my eyes to a myriad of possibilities and opportunities that I never would have come across if it wasn't for that training and education. So I think it's really important that we have that education and that access in smaller towns. And so I think that's part of the reason I also started this program.
0: Fantastic. So what would you have to say to younger people who are thinking about starting a career in nonprofits or? Maybe they're working in business right now, and they're looking for ways to contribute to society in some way.
2: I would say that it's never too late to switch. <laughs> <laughs> <Okay>. um, <laughs> I knew nothing about it, and I think that at any age, um, just like we mentioned before, it's never too late to jump in and learn as much as you can. And if you have a passion for it, um, find people who have similar interests and put your heads together because, and then you know, fulfill your passions and your dreams.
0: Next, you'll hear from Eduardo Valaro. Eduardo was actually born in Cuba, but raised here in the United States in New York since the age of six. Growing up in the Bronx was not easy for Eduardo. He had to negotiate many difficult situations, whether it be trying to figure out how to get his stolen bike back or to avoid being beaten going to school. But through that, he was able to rise and pursue his career in dance. And now, as the head of Ballet Hispanico, an organization that he's been a part of since 1985, he is working to help marginalized communities in a variety of ways through dance and its collateral benefits. We're going to talk with Eduardo about his organization, the Ballet Hispanico, and also about his philosophy, some of which I've just mentioned, the community arts partnership, education philosophy, and also the importance of arts and dance in particular as we head into the future. Well, Eduardo, welcome to the Heart of Giving podcast.
3: Art, thank you so much. I'm thrilled to be here. Well, Eduardo,
0: tell us about Ballet Hispanico, what it does and what its aims are.
3: There's nothing more that I'd like to do than tell you because I love this organization so much. And it's been part of my life for actually a good chunk of it. I won't tell you how old I am. But (laughs) Ballet Hispanico is the nation's largest Latinx dance organization. It has also been named one of America's cultural treasures by the Ford Foundation recently. Ballet Hispanico was formed by Tina Ramirez in 1970 to give access and voice to Latinx artists and youth. It is an organization that began from grassroots origins in teaching young black and brown kids the art of dance when, you know, the only way you can get to that was through the ballet world, which was a hugely white dominant cultural institutions that was very difficult to get into. So Tina Ramirez started developing these workshops and classes for young kids. They became very good. They started dancing in the streets, in fairs, in marketplaces, in makeshift theaters. They got so good, they became a dance company. And in 50 years, because we're celebrating our 50 years of being alive, hooray, our anniversary this year is remarkable, So in 50 years, it has developed to an organization that is built on access to the arts for all communities, focusing on black and brown communities, but also on the ability to see new works that develop other narratives than what we have in the predominantly white arts organization and theater and on stage. So this is the, the the other side of who we are. And it was an organization that was began at the same time that many other cultural organizations of color like the Alvin Ailey Dance, American Dance Theater and Dance Theater of Harlem also grew. So we're all in that. It was a time where people of color were really saying, we need our voice.
0: That's wonderful. I had a chance to meet Arthur Mitchell, so I have a real strong sense of what your organization is about, even though Arthur's organization, Dance Theater of Harlem, was a different organization. But I'm glad you mentioned that they all came up around the same time, seeking to create opportunities for people to break into this genre. Now, you mentioned to me that there's a relationship between the community arts partnerships and the Ballet Hispanico. What do you what is the concept of a community arts partnership?
3: The community arts partnership is the third leg of this three-legged stool that is our organization. Our professional company, our training, or our school of dance, and then the community arts partnership. Community arts partnership is that community service arm for me, in in my estimation. For the organization, it it is about community engagement. So what this organization does is bring this art form in unique different ways to a variety of communities, both here in the city of origin and when we're on tour. And what it is, is about infiltrating into the community and giving them the same access that, let's say, a young student coming in to train or a young professional starting and dancing with the company gets, right? It is not only about training or dance. It is about cultural immersion. So we are able to go into communities and build different types of workshops and events that give the community a sense of ownership around cultural dialogue, and the learning about the intersectionality that is who we are as Americans and who we are as Latinx people and people that have come from years of fusion and intersection. Let me give you an example or else it just stays up in the clouds. Right, great. So we we do everything from we go into public schools and teach Latinx culture and dance to kids from kindergarten through high school, we go into the university systems and we teach their similar things, but we can also do forums where we talk about issues of racial awareness and culture or dance. We go into, I mean, these are some of my most fun. We work with the disabled communities when we're on tour with special workshops that engage that community. Again, access. This is all about access for these communities. We've worked with young incarcerated youth, and that's something that's really important for me because there is where my community of black and brown brothers and sisters are. And so if we're able to go in and open a window for these young people to find their artistic selves, and to find another means of expression, I think that that is something that's very important and that only the arts can do in a very special way.
0: So just speaking about expression, how might the arts in particular help young people find a way to express their culture? I know that there are many dance techniques, I would imagine, that focus on just learning the craft of dance but how does one go from learning let's say the craft to actually expressing their culture how does that play out in a in a dance routine for instance
3: so we want to go beyond a dance routine a lot of folks might see things on the media and it it looks very rote and in sequence Dance is so much more than that. And so what we do is bring the art form of dance as far as it's an artistic process. So in learning process, you are learning to remove yourself and learn something else, right? So already psychologically, you're kind of putting your personal, hopefully, and your ego to the side in order to take in a specific technique. Once you've gone beyond the technique and you start learning... There are ways to utilizing dance concepts in order to build aesthetic, build opinion, craft critical analysis. And so what you're doing is you're giving a set of tools to the young mind that can be used in other ways. I mean, I know lots of dancers that are incredible financial officers now because they they know how to organize their thinking. And so that's the bridge. That's the bridge that you you take from any art form, from playing the violin, from practicing your piano. There is the technique. And then above that is the actual process awareness and looking at how you can use these newfound talents of, you know, if you're forever trying to make movement into image, you are really requiring your whole mind to translate two very opposing things how do you translate movement to emotion how do you translate movement to narrative and and i just want to say that that is it because dance is its own language it is a corporal language what you're doing is you're removing yourself to learn that language and then you're adding on right i hope i explained myself well no
0: i think you are you're you're giving us a sense of just what the artist is experiencing and trying to convey to those who are watching the performance. And even if they aren't watching, it's a, I, I would suspect, inner understanding that the, the artist is generating you know, for him or herself. Correct.
3: So it's, it's beautiful the way you've actually explained it. And I have to say that sometimes folks want to get art, get it, understand it and that's not the point. And I always tell everyone, you know, just sit back, relax and feel your feelings. Yeah. If you're if you're upset about it, ask yourself why. Yeah. What's it not connecting for you? And so I love when an audience leaves a ballet hispanico performance and they're like, "I didn't know that. What? That music is Latin? How?" I've got to then do my own research. We're spoon-fed too much. It's about us moving beyond ourselves and i think that's what the arts do for our young people.
0: Yeah. Well, you know, the whole cultural issue is is kind of interesting because people who live in America can represent lots of different cultures all at once. Yes. You know, and it's it's just i guess it would be gratifying to you to watch performances or to be a part of performances that sort of bridge different communities as they go about performing or choreographing a piece. Do you see that very often?
3: I, I do see that. I see that a, a lot and I see that when when a community has enough access to the arts, to a diversity of arts, dance and music and theater. When a community is engaged and has the ability to to do that, it, it, it happens
0: well you know i asked that question for a very special reason which is if you look at our society today mm. uh, we're very polarized you know we have certainly racial reckoning going on which is due and timely of course we also have many who are part of what we might consider to be an incumbent culture that are fearful of what the racial reckoning might lead to and Uh, Somehow, it seems to me that we have to be able to communicate and bridge these cultures. I'm sort of from a sports background, and I always found athletics to be something that could bring people of different backgrounds together, create greater understanding. Do you see the same thing going on in dance particularly?
3: Absolutely. In the arts, mainly in dance, again, because it is of the body You you come into a studio and it's not about your color, your accent, nothing. It's about what you're going to bring to it through your body. So again, I'm not saying that there's no awareness of culture or color. Trust me, we all have to do this work. But I, I do want to say, you know, when you started talking about the polarization today, there's something that happens to me when I sit in an audience with a diverse group of people. And here's what the arts does. It actually forces you to be in communion all at the same time. It is very similar to a sports team playing. It is similar to church. It is similar to those moments when we come as a community. And sometimes I sit and I feel the, and the, and it's all the same. There's no, no polarization. You find yourself in there. And so you have to, let go and sit back, and then you're focused on this. But sometimes you realize, oh, there's someone else is really laughing at that joke. That's why the arts are so important and why we can then take that audience. And I've been in a lot of talkbacks. You know, when you do an artist talkback, it's so helpful for that audience to bring that audience into a next level of understanding. So we've got a lot of work to do. And I think team playing and sports is one of those. As with everything, you're there because you're committed to this love that you have of movement and of competition.
0: How are you thinking about the future now that you have a moment to maybe breathe and, and actually think about the future, given this amazing gift that you've received? How are you thinking about the future, not only of your organization, but of dance to to serve society?
3: Well, we've been dancing since the fire was made, right? Since from the dawn of time, when man decided to build his fire and come together, dance was part of ritual, was part of transition, whether it's from age to birth to death, movement was a language that connected us all. And so I think it is my task and the task of everyone in this field to continue to make everyone understand how this form, as you said, how sports can bring us together. I think that we are in a time of reckoning and our practices, even within how we run things, how the information we give students, how we make sure that our students are not only physically eloquent, but mentally stable and eloquent, how we support in a holistic way the full human experience and the human being. And I think that that's an internal conversation, certainly that we're having. And that also brings in topics of climate change, topics of continuing forums. So we have a great program called Dialogos, which means dialogue, where we talk about race, dance, and and culture, how we come together and start chipping away at those structures that have maintained people oppressed or without action, I think that we as an arts organization need to understand that, personally, it's my humble opinion, that the arts organization is no longer a pretty vase that you put on a shelf. It is an organization of service, service to the art and to the community. This is not about the diva that needs flowers every day after the performance no it's about the diva that needs to go talk to the audience after the performance so how are we building more connectivity with us as humans so that is where i think that we need to continue to go because if not you'll fall on the wayside so we have a lot of arts genres and art types that are people are questioning is this going to survive is the opera going to survive is a symphony going to survive I don't know. If you continue being who you were before, you might not because you're not talking to anyone. You're not connecting with anyone and you're still upholding hierarchy and supremacy. So that's going to go.
0: The last excerpt you'll hear is of an interview I did with Diana Byer. Diana is the founder and now retired artistic director after 44 years at the New York Theater Ballet. Diana is also the head of school currently for the New York Theater Ballet School, which is the official school of the New York Theater Ballet. Diana's passion for dance began at a very early age. Her talent was recognized by some of the world-renowned teachers that she had. She was able to matriculate to Juilliard, have a wonderful career, which began as a professional at the age of 17, And then went on years later to decide to start her own company to give people from disadvantaged backgrounds the opportunity to become dancers. But not only that, to help them through some of the challenges that they were experiencing, just getting a basic education. I know you'll find her story compelling. Well, Diana, let's talk about you for a minute. Let's talk about your life and how it how it began and how it led you to starting and and entering a career of dance and and theater arts for that matter.
4: Well, I had a very strange beginning, I have to say. Um, I was this very, very chubby child and the pediatrician told my mother that if I didn't exercise, I would become an obese adult. So she took me to dance classes and that's how it started. And I studied with a wonderful teacher, Francis Kiernan, right through high school. And then I was lucky to get into the Juilliard School and came to New York and studied with the great teachers, Anthony Tudor, Margaret Crass, Alfredo Corvino, Mary Hinkson, Sarah Stackhouse at Juilliard and got work right away and just danced. I turned professional when I was 17.
0: Well, Juilliard doesn't accept anyone. I know there are long lists of people who want to be um, enrolled into that school because of what they receive in terms of training and education. Um, you must have been fairly amazing. You must have been quite a standout in order to uh, to achieve that. And I, I guess I would also say you were uh, a, a pretty serious dancer Uh, from a pretty early age. When did you realize that maybe you had a shot at being a professional?
4: Well, I never wanted to do anything else with my life. As soon as I started my first dance class, that was the direction I wanted to go in. So for me, there was never a question. For my parents, that was a different story. That (laughs) for me, it was always dance. It was to be my life. And that's what it's turned out to be.
0: Well, we do hear a lot of nervous parents who yeah. have children who enter the arts. They worry that they'll not be viable. They won't be able to to make a living. I had a recent conversation with a young woman who has a, a degree and now a master's degree in vocal arts. And she is terrific. She's amazing. And she's sort of charting her own path. She's classically trained. She talks about carving out her own way to success. And it won't probably be through many of the classical f- forms. She's not going to pursue a career in, in opera, for instance, although what she will do will have elements of what she learned as she begins to find her own way. But what was so interesting about her was that she was also raised by two parents who are also artists, and she received all the encouragement that someone might receive, even at uh, at an early age. And there was never any of this talk about, well, you need to make sure you're able to get a job and, and have a living, which I hear a lot of artists have to struggle with.
4: Yeah, my parents are like that. But I dug my heels in, so <laughs> I did what I needed to do and left home at 17 and went to Juilliard and... Then kind of found my way over the years. It was a struggle and then sometimes not a struggle. It changed year to year.
0: Well, what would you say to people who maybe are like you? Not all of them, of course, will achieve your level of success. But what does participating in the arts do for young people in particular, even those who won't go on to be prima ballerinas or, (laughs) or, even work at it professionally what does it do for a young person and and how does it potentially create even a sense of wanting to give back and provide for our culture and society in your opinion
4: well i for me all art forms fill your soul you know it's not from the outside it's from the inside and what really is art it's about generosity you create your art to give to someone else, right? If someone writes a novel, it's for someone else to read. If you are a musician, it's for someone else to hear. If you're a dancer, it's for someone else to view the dance. If you're a painter, someone looks at the painting. So to me, it's teaching generosity of spirit. And I think it's one of the most important qualities a person should have. And I think that's what art does for young people, it teaches them generosity of spirit.
0: Well, I couldn't agree more. And I think that we need to do everything in our power to assure that our upcoming generations see the importance of generosity and are are often willing to, to give back and support those in different ways who, who need our help, as you have.
4: Well, I just wanted to say that I think children from an upper class, middle class backgrounds have opportunities to be a part of arts education, but one of the reasons I started the LIFT program is so that children that are disadvantaged or coming from homeless shelters, they don't have those opportunities, and I think it's important that they learn about this feeling of generosity and how they can succeed, and I think always an art form does that. And it teaches learning skills. It teaches so much more than just the pleasure of the art form.
0: Yeah. Well, I want to talk about the Lyft program. I want to talk about the, the ballet itself, which you created. And tell me what motivated you to actually start the company. And how do you feel you've succeeded with it? What were some of the challenges in the early days?
4: Well, I was never motivated, I have to say. It fell in my lap. I came back from dancing in Canada with Le Grand Ballet Canadienne, and some male dancers came back to New York after dancing companies in Europe, and we all studied with Margaret Krask. So we all kind of descended back to class together, and the boys wanted to choreograph. And I thought, well, why do you want to do a whole evening, an hour and a half to two hour evening of your own work when you're just starting out and you're all using the same dancers? Why not each of you do one piece and we'll try and make a program. So that's what happened. We made a program and the program got booked. And I said that I would stay on to do the paperwork and the busy, you know, the desk work for three months and then you find an artistic director. And the three months has turned into 44 years. (laughs) So that's how it happened. It wasn't anything I ever thought of doing. I just wanted to dance. And this is what happened. And the teaching happened because Margaret Krask had a pupil, Livia Vanover, who didn't know the adagios. And she asked me if I would teach her the adagios. And I said, sure. And then she brought a friend and then that friend brought two friends. And then all of a sudden I had a school and it was nothing I ever planned on. And I think that's a lovely way to go through life, that it just sort of happens, and you go with the flow and you grab the opportunity.
0: Well, and as you pointed out earlier, you were focused on delivering something for others as well as yourself. And look what happened. It seems that sometimes when our focus is, on making sure that we're doing for others that maybe good things come to us as well. Let me ask you, when you started the organization, though, did you have some specific objectives in mind? What were you thinking about at the time? And did that objective change throughout those 44 years in any way?
4: Yes, it did. It did change. I think in the beginning it was just to to dance. We all wanted to dance. And so that's what we did. And We tried to find the right ballets to make a good program. That was my job. But then Skylar Chapin, who is the commissioner with the Department of Cultural Affairs, had this fabulous idea of bringing shelter children to different arts organizations over the winter break. And we were one of the arts organizations. So the first year they bust in, 35 children from a specific shelter to us. And we had the children for that full week of winter break. They came at 9 o'clock. They got a hot breakfast, a beginner ballet class. Then we did an hour and 15 minutes of reading skills and vocabulary, because I personally think education is extremely important. And then we did a hot lunch. And then we set up a room with over 3,000 books that I was able to get donated. And the children took 20 books home per day for the five days. And we had books for their parents, books for their siblings, and books you know, for their age group. And then that experience made me want to keep this going, because there is a little flaw in the program. You give the children this fantastic experience in the arts, one week only, and then you take it away that to me didn't make sense, so we just kept it going um, and offered scholarships to not just the very talented children, but to children that were very courageous and were kind of willing to grab the bull by the horns and study, and mothers that seemed to care about education. So we offered full scholarships and mentoring and tutoring and all sorts of things. So that took on a direction of its own. And then One of our board members worked on Sesame Street with Jim Henson. His name was Kermit Love and he took care of Big Bird and he made Snuffleupagus. And I was sitting on the steps with Jim one day and we were talking about how to bring arts to inner city children. And he suggested, why not try a Nutcracker that's just a little under an hour, invite inner city kids and see what happens. we worked together and put together the Nutcracker, and then that grew into our Once Upon a Ballet series.
0: So in these 44 years, I'm just trying to get some sense of, of what you've accomplished here. What have been some of the big highs for you? And in that, in that regard, not only highs for you personally, but per highs for you because of what you were able to do for others.
4: Well, let me start by saying we're a small arts organization in a big city surrounded by some of the biggest, most well-known and best arts organizations, dance companies in the world. We fall through the cracks. A company like New York Theatre Ballet will always fall through the cracks when you're in this kind of a city. I think that, that we've survived 44 years as a small arts organization is miraculous. I think that, that we have been able to give so much to these children that otherwise would be on the corner selling drugs or what, what would they be doing? And we've been able to really guide them. We've been able to get mentors that look after the children, look after their school, you know, talk to the principal, make sure they keep their grades up, help them with college applications, and make sure they have uh, socks and pajamas. We try to do give every child everything they need for learning, and I, I'm very proud of that. I'm also proud that our repertory has, we've given, emerging young choreographers a chance to work with professional dancers and work with our costume designer, Sylvia Nolan, who's the resident costume designer at the Metropolitan Opera. She started out as a dancer with my company. These young choreographers get to meet with her and learn the language so they can really speak to a costume designer. And we give them an opportunity to produce their work and get seen and get reviewed by Alistair Macaulay in the New York Times and G. Corliss. And I'm very proud of that part of, you know, that's another strand of our program is giving these young choreographers a chance to really create and they get a salary to do it. Even during COVID, we worked with 21 different choreographers and that we've been able to do lesser known masterworks by master choreographers that's always been a part of another strand of what we do so i'm proud of all of that and proud that i've been able to keep a school teaching the jacchetti method of training which is a method that's not very well known in the united states and our dancers dance with my company with new york theater ballet or they go off and dance with other companies or or make a life you know they've learned the discipline and learning skills and generosity of what you need to succeed in the world
0: and that's what i'm proud of well and it's not over so you have you have this new project um, the Lyft project i'd like to hear about that
4: well Lyft is a program for children either living in shelters or if they're in public housing, they've left the shelter, or are otherwise disadvantaged. You know, there's many ways to be disadvantaged in New York City. And they get a full scholarship. Children that are, I think, have talent and a lot, I always use the word courage. They can kind of grasp what they're given. I try to get them scholarships at private schools if they're falling behind. And I try, if I feel they need a mentor, to keep track and I can't always to pair them up with a good mentor uh if they need tutoring we can tutor you know we'd have a balcony i don't do any of this in public i don't like anybody to know who's in the scholarship program because i think it doesn't do good service to the child it's everybody's equal so i know and my assistant knows Sometimes the teachers don't even know. So it's kind of a safe haven. You can be who you are here. Yeah, we just try to do everything the child needs. That we can, and we're not a social service organization. I do wanna put that out front, we're not that. In the old days when we were able to get some real funding, we had a social worker that worked with the parents while the children were in the studio dancing.
0: What I find noteworthy in each of these interviews are three related things. First, is their passion for the art. Each of these individuals had a tremendous love for dance. And that love drove them to be great dancers. Secondly, that love also inspired them to want to give back. And they found ways through that art and through their passion to find ways to contribute more to others and to society at large. And third, that passion enabled them to continue this throughout their lives. They made a long-term commitment to seeing change and helping others so that they could see change in their lives. Isn't this a great way to think about our own philanthropy? To find things that we love, things that inspire us to be great. And then to try to bring others into that passion along with us, and maybe even find ways through that passion to give back in other ways. And then lastly, to commit to it over a long period of time, to actually see it through, to see the change occur that we envisioned when we started giving back. Well, I hope you've enjoyed the show. The Heart of Giving podcast comes to you weekly. If you haven't subscribed yet, please do. You can find us on all major podcast platforms where you can click like or you can also post a comment. I love those. And if you're so inclined, please make a gift to the Heart of Giving podcast. Any amount would be appreciated. And you can do that by going to our website give.org. We'll see you back here next week.
1: You've just listened to the Heart of Giving podcast with Art Taylor. Be sure to tune in next time for a brand new episode. To listen to our other interviews, visit heartgiving.podbean.com. That's heartgiving.p-o-d-b-e-a-n.com. Subscribe to our show on major podcast platforms. The thoughts and opinions expressed on this podcast are the views and opinions of the guests, not those of the BBB Wise Giving Alliance or program affiliates. This podcast is for information and educational purposes only and is copyrighted with all rights reserved. This podcast is protected by Podbean's Terms of Service.